New York, this is Democracy Now! I have been waiting for their father since 1 p.m. They told me that they were going to hand him over to me, and then at 10 p.m., we started to see smoke billowing from everywhere. Everybody ran away, but they left the men locked in. Everybody was removed from the area, but they left the men locked in. They never opened the door. At least 38 migrants held in a Mexican immigration detention jail near the U.S. border have died in a fire after guards refused to help the men trapped inside. We'll go to Ciudad Juarez for the latest. Then to the fight over TikTok as a bipartisan group of lawmakers moved to ban the Chinese-owned social media app. Some lawmakers are pushing back. We can keep TikTok, we can protect freedom of speech, and we could deal with the privacy concerns at the same time. We could do both. And right now, we're not trying to do both. We'll speak to award-winning technology journalist Julia Angwin about her piece, Banning TikTok is Not the Answer, then Bootstrap, Liberating Ourselves from the American Dream. We'll talk to author Alyssa Court, who runs the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Mexico, hundreds of asylum seekers gathered in Ciudad Juarez Tuesday demanding justice after at least 38 people were killed during a fire at an immigration detention jail just feet from the border with El Paso, Texas. Over two dozen others were seriously injured. The blaze Monday broke out after dozens of migrants set their mattresses on fire, protesting their deportations, as well as abusive and inhumane conditions at the overcrowded jail run by Mexico's National Migration Institute. Surveillance footage released Tuesday also shows guards quickly walking away when the fire started, making no attempt to release the migrants as flames and smoke engulfed their cells. At least 28 of the victims were from Guatemala, according to officials, while others killed and injured were from Venezuela, Honduras, El Salvador, Colombia and Ecuador. This is Daniela Marquez, an asylum seeker from Venezuela at yesterday's protest in Ciudad Juarez. We demand justice for those who were inside the migration center. They had been there inside for a month. They cried out of hunger because they didn't give them food. It's not fair, honestly. The victims have families. Their mothers are in Venezuela. How is that possible that their mothers have to cry for them that far away? It's not fair, honestly. I don't have the words to express what I feel, honestly. After headlines, we'll go to Ciudad Juarez, Mexico, for more. More information has emerged about the Nashville school shooter who killed six people Monday, three of them nine-year-old children. This is Nashville Police Chief John Drake. We've determined uh, that Audrey bought seven firearms uh, from five different uh, local gun stores here legally. Uh, they were legally purchased. Uh, three of those weapons were used yesterday uh, during this horrific tragedy. She was under care, doctor's care, for an emotional disorder. Uh, law enforcement knew nothing about the treatment she was receiving, but her parents felt that she uh, should not own weapons. 
A motive for the massacre has not yet been identified. Police body camera footage shows Nashville officers stopping the rampage four minutes after arriving on the scene. The police response has been compared to last year's mass shooting at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, where officers waited for well over an hour before confronting the shooter, while 21 people, including 19 children, were massacred, almost all of them Latinx. Russia says it's begun drills with its Yars intercontinental ballistic missile system in a show of military might. Meanwhile, Ukraine's received a first shipment of Leopard and Challenger armored tanks from Germany and Britain amid intense fighting in the country's east. The head of the International Atomic Energy Agency, Rafael Grossi, is visiting the site of Europe's largest nuclear power plant in Zaporizhia today. President Volodymyr Zelensky told Rossi the safety at the nuclear power station cannot be guaranteed as long as it remains under Russian occupation in what he called Moscow's radiation blackmail. Grossi said Tuesday talks to stem the risks of a nuclear disaster are ongoing. It might be possible to establish some, some form of protection, perhaps not emphasizing so much the idea of a zone, but on, on the protection itself, what people should do or shouldn't do to, to protect instead of uh, having a territorial concept. In Russia, a man whose 13-year-old daughter drew an anti-war picture at school was sentenced to two years in prison in a case that sparked international outrage. Alexei Moskalyov, however, has apparently escaped his house arrest, and authorities said Tuesday his whereabouts are unknown. His daughter, whose drawing featured a Ukrainian mother and child under a barrage of missiles, was removed from her home and put in a shelter. The owner of The Guardian issued an apology Tuesday for the British newspaper's founder's role in transatlantic slavery. The Scott Trust published research that shows Guardian founder John Edward Taylor and investors gained much of their wealth from the cotton trade after importing the cotton from North America, where it was cultivated by enslaved Africans on plantations. The findings came as part of an independent investigation commissioned in late 2020 by the Scott Trust. The Guardian also announced a 10-year, $12 million restorative justice program, which includes supporting black journalists. British-Nigerian historian and member of the Scott Trust, David Alusoga, is featured in a video as part of The Guardian's report, as well as a written piece in which he describes how British ties to the transatlantic slave trade have been obfuscated. The Guardian, like thousands of institutions in Britain, has direct financial connections to the world of slavery. That reality can't be negotiated with. It can't be explained away. This history can never be solved, can never be remedied, but it can be something good can come from it, but it needs to be a dialogue. In Burma, the ruling military junta dissolved 40 political parties, including Aung San Suu Kyi's NLD party. NLD and others did not meet a registration deadline for the yet-to-be-scheduled election, which most civilian parties deem illegitimate. 77-year-old Aung San Suu Kyi was deposed and arrested in February 2021 military coup and is now serving prison sentences totaling 33 years. The U.N. reports the humanitarian and human rights crisis in Burma is continuing to deteriorate with mass arrests, torture of prisoners, the killing of civilians, and media repression. Back in the United States, in Idaho, the State House passed a bill that would criminalize the act of helping someone under the age of 18 obtain an abortion in another state without parental consent. The bill is now headed to the Idaho Senate, where it's also expected to pass. Almost all abortions are now illegal in Idaho following the repeal of Roe v. Wade. With the proposed measure, state Republicans created a new crime, so-called 
abortion trafficking, with penalties of two to five years in prison. The legislation also applies to mail-order medication abortions, meaning an older relative who drives a minor to the post office to pick up a package containing abortion pills could end up in prison. A federal judge has reportedly ordered former Vice President Mike Pence to testify to the grand jury investigating Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Special counsel Jack Smith, who's overseeing the grand jury, subpoenaed Pence earlier this year. While the judge ruled executive privilege does not shield Pence from testifying, Pence could avoid certain lines of questioning thanks to a constitutional clause known as speech or debate that's intended to protect lawmakers from some forms of legal action. Pence could still appeal the judge's decision. Meanwhile, former National Enquirer publisher David Pecker testified again this week before the Manhattan grand jury looking into alleged hush money payments made to Stormy Daniels during Trump's 2016 campaign. Pecker said to have helped broker the deal between Daniels and Trump's former fixer, Michael Cohen. The Washington Post reporting Ginny Thomas, wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, collected nearly $600,000 in anonymous donations for a conservative group called Crowdsourcers for Culture and Liberty. It's not the first time Ginny and Clarence Thomas have come under scrutiny for conflict of interest issues. In 2020, Ginny Thomas urged White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows to pursue efforts to overturn Donald Trump's election loss and pressured officials in Arizona. Arizona and Wisconsin to choose pro-Trump electors. Justice Thomas was the sole dissenter in the Supreme Court's 8-to-1 decision that led to the release of White House documents around January 6. In other news from Washington, President Biden and Republicans remain at odds over how to handle the debt ceiling, as Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy requested a meeting with Biden Tuesday to push for spending cuts before agreeing to raise the debt limit. The White House and Democrats have rejected this idea. Republicans agreed to raising the debt ceiling with no conditions three times during Trump's presidency. Yesterday, advocacy groups joined with progressive lawmakers to demand Republicans stop cutting essential social services, including Medicare and the food assistance program SNAP, which was recently slashed after being increased during the pandemic. This is April Lewis from Action North Carolina. Conservatives are trying to increase costs, paperwork and bureaucracy that will only put families like mine at risk of losing access to food assistance and increasing the risk of homelessness because the same conservatives are increasing costs for low income families by, uh, excuse me, by protecting tax loopholes for the wealthy. These wealthy stakeholders and corporations should pay their fair share, and by reversing the Trump tax cuts alone mm-hmm. would save $2 trillion. And a Maryland appeals court has reinstated the murder conviction of Adnan Syed, less than six months after prosecutors in Baltimore dropped charges against him last October, asserting he was wrongly convicted. Syed was released from prison in September following 23 years behind bars for the 1999 murder of his ex-girlfriend, Heyman Lee. The appeals court Tuesday ordered a new hearing on Syed's conviction, saying the rights of Heyman Lee's brother, Young Lee, had been violated when he wasn't given adequate notice to travel from California to attend last year's proceedings in Maryland in person. The case gained national attention in 2014 when it was featured on the hugely popular podcast, Serial. 
And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York with Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. We begin today's show in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico, where a fire has killed at least 38 migrants held in a Mexican immigration detention jail Monday night, injured dozens more. The fire occurred just across the U.S. border near the Santa Fe International Bridge to El Paso, Texas. Surveillance video from the jail shows guards walking away as flames spread inside the jail cells. In the video, guards made no effort to open the jail cells or help the migrants who were trapped. Mexican officials initially said most of the dead were Venezuelans, but authorities in Guatemala say 28 of the victims were from Guatemala. Others killed and injured were from Venezuela, Honduras, El Salvador, Colombia, and Ecuador. On Monday night, a Venezuelan woman who was holding her young child talked about what happened to her husband who was injured in the fire. I have been waiting for their father since 1 p.m. They told me that they were going to hand him over to me, and then at 10 p.m., we started to see smoke billowing from everywhere. Everybody ran away, but they left the men locked in. Everybody was removed from the area, but they left the men locked in. They never opened the door. We have the paperwork here in Ciudad Juarez, but they took him from the streets for no reason. They are taking us for no reason without asking if we have the paperwork or not. If you are a migrant, they take you in the car. It's that simple. Speaking outside the jail, a Venezuelan man named Rañó Murillo decried the treatment of the men locked inside. To all of those people who died, the guards could have opened the gates to let them out, because there was only a few meters between the gate that separated them from the migration officers. They didn't open the gate, leaving them locked in. The fire advanced, and they didn't leave. The guards didn't help them, because they didn't feel like it. The guards treat you badly. An official investigation into the fire has not been completed, but on Tuesday, Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador said the fire began after migrants set their mattresses on fire to protest conditions. The United Nations Human Rights Office said the fire was a, quote, preventable tragedy. In a statement, the U.N. agency said, quote, we again urge all states to adopt alternatives to immigration detention. We go now to Ciudad Juarez, Mexico, where we're joined by Luis Chaparro, journalist reporting from the U.S.-Mexico border, where his new report for Vice News is just out. It's headlined, They Only Listen to Us When We Die, Migrants Killed in Fire Were Locked in Jail Cell. Welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us, Luis, uh, but under horrible circumstances. Explain exactly what you understand happened, as you've talked to so many people there now since Monday night. Hi, Amy, and Juan, thank you for having me. And yes, absolutely sadness uh, that these happened in the border of Ciudad Juarez, although uh, my opinion is that this is a tragedy that was due to happen at the center of what happened uh, 24 hours ago is or um, are these detention centers that Mexico claims to be shelters but are no other than jails for immigrants and that they have really done nothing but just being undocumented in a country uh, that it's a transit country for, for them. 
And what goes behind those walls, we don't really know because these are very opaque and and, and not transparent places where we don't have access as journalists or as uh, NGOs. Um, So we really don't know uh, what else is going on behind these bars. But judging by the video that was just out, when we see these cell guards and these um, immigration officers walking away, like if nothing was happening when flames were already out, show us, like, give us an example of what's really going on behind those bars. Uh, And Luis, could you talk about there have been some reports that the Mexican government in the last uh, few days especially was cracking down increasingly on uh, 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 on the asylum seekers, who many of whom were forced to take odd jobs or uh, in the informal economy uh, just to survive while they were waiting uh, for a decision on their cases. Can you talk about that at all? Definitely. And, and that's uh, I think that's what really began the whole tragedy. Um, most of the migrants uh, from, from Venezuela, Guatemala, Honduras and El Salvador um, have really no place to stay because uh, shelters are at capacity. Some other shelters will only take families if they have kids or, or, or women. Um, but and so male basically are left out to sleep in the streets, in looted houses and to beg or ask for money in um, stoplights around the city. Many people in Ciudad Juarez began complaining for the presence of migrants out in the streets. And I think that pushed authorities to combine efforts, to call it one way, between the local police, state police, and the Mexican Institute of Immigration to crack down on people out in the streets. They started grabbing people from early in the morning. My understanding is that they started the raids uh, from 10 in the morning uh, all through the day. They They were locking migrants inside this facility with no water, no food, and they didn't even understand why were they being locked up since many of them uh, actually had documents to be legally in the country for at least 30 more days. So that's why they started uh, protesting inside the inside the immigration center. And could you talk about the significance of the fact that uh, in, a, in a few weeks in early May, the uh, there will be the end of the Title 42 policy in the United States as a result of a Supreme uh, Court uh, decision. Uh, there are reports that there are increasing numbers of, of migrants coming to the border. Uh, do you expect these problems to increase over the next few weeks? Most definitely. You know, the back and forth and all the confusion around immigration policies has been causing a a tragic effect in the immigration community and from from different countries because they are really confused. Like if they they, like the the app they're using, CBP1 is not working. Uh, We recently had uh, a riot in one of the main ports of entry between Ciudad Juarez and El Paso when migrants demanded that someone help them navigate the app and they try to get across to get help from um, CBP officers. So that was uh, that was just um, you know an example to how they f- feel frustrated and confused. And now many of them are expecting to for Title 42 to end, but they don't really know if that's actually going to happen. Although they they are arriving at uh, border cities in hopes that Title 42 will end in May, but this is adding a lot of pressure to border cities like Ciudad Juarez and El Paso. 
and specifically to these um, institutes like the INM, the Institute, uh, uh, Mexican Institute for Immigration, that uh, I don't think it's uh, they, they really have a capacity to work for and to uh, these uh, migrant community. Um, Luis, the deaths in Mexico came just hours after the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees urged the Biden administration not to adopt the proposed anti-asylum rule that would deny claims made by refugees who lack, quote, documents sufficient for lawful admission. In a statement, the U.N. Refugee Agency said the regulation would restrict the fundamental human right to seek asylum, adding, quote, UNHCR is particularly concerned that this would lead to cases of refoulement, the forced return of people to situations where their lives lives and safety would be at risk, which is prohibited under international law, unquote. So that's the U.N.'s comment. So if you can talk while this is in Ciudad Juarez, it's literally feet from the border, about the responsibility of the U.S. government as well right now. Definitely. This is, this is one of the very notable examples of how these migrants are being endangered by these U.S. policies. The U.N. has been warning these for several years now that these kind of policies are making migrants more and more vulnerable. One of the situations they face, of course, is uh, violence by criminal organizations in Mexican soil. We've been seeing in places like Matamoros, places um, like uh, Tijuana as well, and Ciudad Juarez, that they've been uh, targeted by criminal organizations to kidnap them, extort them, and in some other cases to actually kill them. And now we have this case where it doesn't only shows you that they're being targeted by criminal organizations or that they remain uh, vulnerable to criminal organizations, but they also remain vulnerable to a very much corrupt and not transparent government, which is the Mexican government. And this is only happening because of the U.S. Uh, push to keep these policies in place, like Title 42, to name only one of the policies that are endangering migrants. And, and Luis, you mentioned the Mexican government. Uh, uh, President uh, Lopez Obrador has increasingly in the past few months been striking a much more, uh, I don't want to say militant, but independent stance in many of his speeches uh, to, uh, uh, against the United States. Yet at the same time, he continues to cooperate, essentially, with uh, first the Trump administration and now the Biden administration on the migration uh, issue along the border. What do you think about the contradictions between Lopez Obrador's public statements and the practice of his government on this issue? I'm wondering if you could comment on that. Sure. Lopez Obrador says something and then does something else. And that's been the policy since the beginning of his administration. When he said that Mexico was not going to be militarized, he completely militarized the, the country, also endangering migrants. Because as of right now, we have probably twice the uh, National Guard members deployed to immigration tasks, immigration enforcement tasks, then we have Border Patrol in both uh, borders of the U.S. That that says a lot about how the Lopez Obrador administration is dealing with immigration, which is basically handing immigration tasks to former uh, military and federal police officers that are not well prepared to deal with, the, with immigrants or with an immigration community. 
um, López Obrador also has been trying to um, crack down the southern border of Mexico and also enforce the northern border of Mexico. So even though if he's if he's been very, you know, active saying that he's going to protect its own, it's going to protect its country from U.S. policies that are harming Mexico, I think he has been doing absolutely the opposite, cracking down on immigration. This is probably the first administration that has been so harsh against immigrants in uh, Mexican territory. In comparisons to Trump, under the Trump years, Luis? Yes, well, in Trump years, actually, that's when when uh, the Mexican administration began. I mean, Lopez Obrador was pretty much complying with everything that uh, former President Donald Trump was uh, trying to do with Mexico when he said that Mexico was going to pay for the wall. I think that was not literally, but mostly figurative. And I think that's what Lopez Obrador agreed upon to build and, and, and make Mexico uh, jail for immigrants in places like Tapachula, where we have probably even um, worst cases of these immigration detention facilities, but also by deploying hundreds and hundreds of National Guard members to the northern border, where they are literally grabbing migrants from doing something that is lawful, which is getting across and turning themselves over to Border Patrol agents to um, apply for political asylum. Luis Chapada, we want to thank you so much for being with us as you speak to us from Ciudad Juarez in Mexico. We will link to your new report for Vice News, which is just out. They only listen to us when we die. Migrants killed in fire were locked in jail cell. Coming up, award-winning technology journalist Julia Angwin on why banning TikTok is not the answer. Stay with us. Chicos Tristes, The Sad Boys, by Hermanos Gutierrez. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. As a growing number of governments worldwide enact new limits on social media apps, we look now at bipartisan calls at home to ban one specific app here in the United States, the Chinese-owned TikTok. Last Thursday, Congress members grilled TikTok CEO Shou Jichu during a five-hour hearing on the app's ties to the Chinese government data practices and its effects on children's mental health. This is Democratic Florida Congress member Darren Soto questioning Chu. 
So, Mr. Chu, would TikTok be prepared to divest from ByteDance and uh, Chinese Communist Party ties if the Department of Treasury instructed you all to do so? Uh, Congressman, I said in my opening statement, I think we are need to address the problem of privacy. I agree with you. I don't think ownership is the issue here. With a lot of respect, American social companies don't have a good track record with data privacy and user security. I mean, look at Facebook and Cambridge Analytica. Just one example. This comes as a bipartisan group of U.S. senators has introduced the RESTRICT Act, which stands for Restricting the Emergence of Security Threats that Risk Information Communications Technology Act, which would allow the federal government to potentially ban technology from countries the U.S. considers to be adversaries, including China. Meanwhile, Democratic Congress member Jamal Bowman of New York has been a leading opponent of a TikTok ban. So we're talking about free speech for everyday Americans. We're talking about small business owners who use TikTok to grow their business. And my question is, and we're going to pivot to the other part of the conversation, why the hysteria and the panic and the targeting of TikTok. As we know, Republicans in particular have been sounding the alarm, creating a red scare around China. Congressman Bowman has been joined by New York Congressmember Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, who laid out her concerns in a video she posted on TikTok after opening her first account on the app. Usually, when the United States is proposing a very major move that has something to do with significant risk to national security, one of the first things that happens is that Congress receives a classified briefing. And I can tell you that Congress has not received a classified briefing around the allegations of national security risks regarding TikTok. So why would we be proposing a ban regarding such a significant issue without being clued in on this at all? It just doesn't feel right to me. For more, we're joined in New York by Julia Angwin, investigative journalist formerly with ProPublica, contributing opinion writer at The New York Times, where her latest guest essay is headlined, How to Fix the TikTok Problem. We last spoke to her in 2014 about her book, Dragnet Nation, a quest for privacy, security and freedom in a world of relentless surveillance. Julia, welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. I mean, it was amazing to see this absolute bipartisan, almost consensus in the particular hearing um, that the CEO of TikTok was uh, being questioned at, being grilled and demanding that TikTok um, be sold to a U.S. company in order for it to be saved. Uh, talk about what Bowman said, what AOC has said, and what you think are the major concerns here. Thank you so much for having me on. It's great to be here. And I have to say, it was Amazing to watch Congress finally taking privacy seriously, but only for one app, right? So I um, have been writing about privacy issues. I published my book almost a decade ago, and people have been trying to get Congress to pass a federal privacy law that would protect our data on all of our apps and all of the different ways that we are mediated by technology. And we're one of the only Western nations that has not passed such a bill. And so now we have, of course, this uh, frenzy around TikTok and this idea that they're are the ones who we really need to be protected against. And the reality is there's really nothing that TikTok is accused of that the other social media platforms haven't done as well.
And isn't there also the uh, the issue of um, the, the question of governments uh, governments being able to use th- these apps uh, for their own ends? Uh, I would assume that anything that China can do, the Chinese government can do with uh, TikTok, the U.S. government can do with the social, the American social media apps that are spread around the world. I mean, it's a really good point that um, all of these social media platforms can and have been manipulated and censored by governments, right? And so most recently, the most recent example we've seen of this actually was that um, there's a Twitter employee who recently was just convicted of spying um, on Saudi dissidents on behalf of the Saudi government. And so he uses access as an employee in order to spy on government, on Twitter users. And, you know, Google over the years has said that they have dismissed more than a dozen employees for misusing data about Google users. And so we've seen that this kind of thing can happen at all of the platforms. It's also true that uh, you don't have to own a platform in order to misuse it, right? So in the 2016 election, we know that Facebook um, was basically used by Russian propagandists to spread misinformation. We know that Russia, that Facebook's platform was used by the Myanmar um, government to spread lies and hate against the Rohingyas, which then led to a genocide. We know that Facebook's platform was used by um, people organizing the Capitol insurrection on January 6th and that Facebook didn't stop that. And so we know these platforms can be misused. And there's no question that China could also, of course, try to misuse the TikTok platform. But what's interesting is that TikTok has proposed a plan that would wall off U.S. data from China's access. It basically has said to the government, we would store all of our data about U.S. users at Oracle, a U.S. company, and we would actually submit to oversight by the Treasury-led Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S. So essentially that committee would be able to inspect their algorithm to see if they're promoting uh, disinformation from China or any other state, um, and also would be able to inspect to make sure that the data about U.S. people is not being transmitted back to China. That's a level of control and state control over an app that we haven't seen before and also is way more oversight than any of the other social media platforms have um, been exposed to. And I'm wondering the 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 broader the broader implications of Congress trying to uh, ban TikTok, especially in view of the fact that the United States for the last 40, 50 years has been the main proponent of globalization, of breaking down barriers between countries and letting uh, uh, letting companies uh, extend their reach and their trade. Uh, I'm wondering, for instance, the, the, the similar battle that happened over Huawei and the, and the 5G and the spread of 5G around the world with the United States, instead of welcoming a greater intercourse between countries, was actually seeking to shut down uh, the ability of a, of, of a Chinese company to uh, market a 5G uh, technology around the world. What's this going to do to the potential for individual countries now to begin to close their borders to trade and commerce in the digital age. 
I mean, this is a really good point, right? So if we put te- the, the proposals on the table are a to put TikTok under state control, to ban it, <laughs> or to force a sale. All three of those things are things that I think the U.S. government would really be mad about if some other country tried to do to one of our companies, right? Right now, already, if you think about the social media platforms and how they behave around the world. Although we often like to be mad at them for various reasons, and we have lots of reasons to be mad often, the reality is that they're being asked in most countries to to act as government censors, right? So like in India, there have been huge pressure on the tech platforms to do censorship on behalf of the government. And some of that censorship, the companies have argued, is illegal, right? And so they have they are actually out there fighting for their users to have free expression. And that's true in a lot of countries. These companies actually spend a lot of time fighting with the governments to try to make sure their platforms can be a place where everyone has a voice. And so for the U.S. to suddenly say, okay, we want to support freedom of expression around the world, right? We do that not only through our private companies, but through our um, our foreign diplomacy and our um, USAID, et cetera, we now actually don't want it at home, right? We're going to actually basically censor TikTok here. It makes it really hard for us to justify um, supporting freedom of expression around the world. So let me ask you about other parts of the Restrict Act, which is co-sponsored. I mean, all of this is bipartisan in a time when the Congress couldn't be more partisan. But I'm going after China on this. You've got Senator Thune and you've got Senator Warner and, of course, others that are co-sponsoring. Um, so we know that um, that they want the they want TikTok to be sold to a U.S. company. But can you talk about other aspects of Restrict Act? Is it true you could face a million dollar fine if you access TikTok? And also, what does this say about restricting VPNs? And explain what they are. Um, yeah, so the Restrict Act is basically this bipartisan bill that um, has come about because the White House apparently believes that they don't actually have the legal authority to ban TikTok. So they were floating this ban and then realized that they needed the legal authority. So this bill, as far as I understand it, is actually meant to give them that legal authority that they don't feel like they have right now. And so it empowers the Commerce Department to do some evaluations of different apps and to see what their risks are and then to take different measures to counteract them, including a ban. And so I think that the fact that it's bipartisan supported is um, a sign of how united Congress is right now. I mean, I've never seen the Dems and Republicans um, on the same side so aggressively as on this particular issue. And it, it really is interesting because um, they're not united on privacy as a larger issue, right? Like um, the privacy bills have not moved, but this issue, which is more, I think, a China issue than a privacy issue, right? They're, the reality is the reason they're united is because everyone sees political capital in uniting to fight against the China threat, right? Now, you asked me about VPNs. VPNs are um, virtual private networks. So basically, it's something you would put on your phone in order to um, 
to, to route around your internet provider. It's often used in places like China, where the government is censoring internet traffic, and it's a way to try to circumvent that censorship. And so it's interesting that you would think of restricting that when, in fact, that's something we tend to export to other nations in order to pr- promote freedom of expression. And could you talk a little about the difference in approach uh, to dealing with uh, social media and technology by the European Union versus what the kinds of legislation that uh, Congress is considering? Yeah, I mean, that's such a great question. The EU has been just years and years ahead of the United States in terms of taking the threats from these platforms seriously and addressing them thoughtfully. So, for instance, they passed a comprehensive privacy law back in 2018 that laid out, you know, basic standards for how data should be treated, what kind of rights users have over their data. Um, And then this year, actually, new laws are coming into place to regulate the algorithms. So it's the first time that algorithms are going to be regulated. These social media companies that are above a certain size will have to report to the EU on the—they have to measure the risks that their algorithms are creating to things like teen mental health, the risks to democracy. Um, These are really big and important questions that the companies have to answer. Then they have to show how they're going to mitigate those risks. And that is something that is really creative way to try to approach this issue without censorship. So the idea is the EU is not saying, like, we've decided that this is a bad thing for democracy. They're saying you need to measure that risk. It's on you to show how you're promoting democracy and how you're not allowing for authoritarianism. And so I think it's an interesting experiment. And the U.S. hasn't done any of that, right? Like, we are nowhere near regulating algorithms. We haven't set a basic privacy law. And, you know, the templates are out there. I will say this, though. California has passed a really strong privacy law that basically emulates the EU law. And so in California, there is actually a strong privacy law that goes into effect this year. And so we are finally catching up on the California level. But, of course, Congress has been threatening to preempt that law with something weaker. So we may not actually get to keep that. We only have about 30 seconds, Julia, but especially for young people. Um, It is critical, especially for young people on mental health issues, the increase in suicide. Um, What exactly can be done? And uh, as with other issues that you're raising, can the companies really regulate themselves Right. I don't think the companies can regulate themselves. We've had decades of them pretending to regulate themselves, and I think we have pretty clear evidence that that's not working. So I do think we need to collectively as a society determine what our important goals are and force them to do it. And I think teen mental health is one where, A, there's not enough research on exactly what is causing the teen mental health problems and how much social media plays in. And two, we haven't put any laws in place to sort of enforce the companies to take that issue seriously. Julia Angwin, investigative journalist, will link to your new article, How to Fix the TikTok Problem, author of Dragnet Nation, A Quest for Privacy, Security and Freedom in a World of Relentless Surveillance. Coming up, bootstrapped, liberating ourselves from the American dream. Stay with us. There's only one song worth singing. They may try and sell you, because it hangs them up to see someone like you. But you've got to make your own kind of music. Sing your own special song. 
of Music by Cass Elliott, very popular on TikTok. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We end today's show with journalist Alyssa Cord, executive director of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, where she worked closely for years with the late Barbara Ehrenreich. Her new book is called Bootstrapped, Liberating Ourselves from the American Dream. In it, she critically examines the American narrative of self-reliance that emphasizes success as a result of individual hard work. The myth shapes our policies as portrayed in popular culture, including the Horatio Alger stories, Ayn Rand's books, Atlas Shrugged and The Fountainhead, and television shows like in the Reagan-era series Little House on the Prairie about a family's life on the American frontier. That's the theme music for Little House on the Prairie. You know, Alyssa Cord, welcome back to Democracy Now! You write in your preface to Bootstrapped, quote, I receive messages from strangers about how the poor are responsible for their own poverty on a routine basis. Those who are economically on the edge, they write, just need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Um, can you lay out what this means as the granddaughter of um, a couple who owned a shoe store in the Bronx? Why you think a bootstrap is key to understanding the false narrative that is developed in this country? Yeah. So what I see, I run this organization that Barbara Ehrenreich and I created, Economic Hardship Reporting Project, and we get these, we got these letters and comments that would be sort of blaming our writers for the uh, poverty they experienced and the difficulties they experienced. And I wanted to get the bottom of it. What was this about? And the more I looked into it, it seemed like it was just this story of shame and blame that has followed people who struggle in this country since the 19th century. And I, I really, I, I see it in the early writings of people like Horatio Alger, etc. About Horatio Alger in particular, you really go into him in the book. <laughs> yes. I mean, Horatio Alger wrote over 100 novels, and they were all these stories of these young men. They have names like Tony the Tramp or Ragged Dick. And they were very young, I mean, teenagers. And when you look at the stories, though, supposedly the Horatio Alger story is about luck and pluck, about a young man through hard work making it in America, coming from nothing. In truth, he always meets an older gentleman who is rich, who uh, saves him, basically, and makes him into a success story. Horatio Alger himself uh, was a committed pedophilic acts, had been a minister, had been chased out of the church in Massachusetts. And I think we need to look at these stories. We need to look at the people who created them um, 
to see some of the hypocrisy and also the complexity. You know, these these young men were not doing this. The teenagers were not making themselves into success stories from nothing by themselves. They had the help of wealthy elder people. And that's really how things work in this country. And the the title bootstrapped, it it struck me, uh, uh, Alyssa, because uh, Puerto Rico in the 1940s and 1950s adopted an industrial and economic policy called Operation Bootstrap. It was supposedly the island was going to lift itself out of poverty. Uh, And uh, of course, the reality was that the method used tax exemptions, federal tax exemptions, local tax exemptions uh, to lure country uh, companies to come to Puerto Rico to set up shop. So it really was not uh, a, a country lifting itself up. It was using the tax system uh, to benefit corporations that would then help lift the island up. This whole idea of the, the bootstrap, you talk in your book about how the concept even originally began. Yeah, so that's a great point, that that example from Puerto Rico. I mean, the concept of bootstrapping is an impossibility. You cannot pull on, you can barely pull yourself, pull your boots on by your bootstraps. You certainly can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And it started out actually in 1834 as a joke. It was a phrase, an absurdity that somehow became uh, something to aspire to over the decades that passed. And I think we need to remember it's still an absurdity. Nobody is able to do this alone. You need infrastructure. You need a tax base. You need parents. You need schools. And this is the message that I'm hoping we'll get through from this book. And it's also a message that has to do with the pandemic. It's things we learned during the pandemic about relying on each other and surviving with the help of others. I'd like to ask you also about something that is bandied about a lot these days in Congress and in terms of dealing with financial problems of the country, the word entitlements for use for referring to Social Security, for example. Could you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, I think even the word entitlement and part of what I'm doing in this book is looking at the language that people use to demonize people who are financially struggling, this kind of idea of the undeserving poor and the the opposite, the deserving rich. So, I mean, if we look at what just happened at Silicon Valley Bank and other banks that have just gotten a bailout, they've gotten entitlements on a massive scale. And yet they're not being shamed and blamed for it, like people who are kicked off of welfare rolls or have to recertify for SNAP on a constant basis. And I think we need to look at the double standard that we have for people who are at the the top of the pyramid economically and those towards the bottom. So, Alyssa Cord, I want to follow up on that. Um, As uh, the debt um, uh, is going to be negotiated, the whole debt ceiling and the question really of these programs uh, being put on the table. You go back in time, and I think your story about Ayn Rand, right, who at the Fountainhead, Atlas Shrugged, uh, uh, Worship by Alan Greenspan, and so many others, um, the story of Ayn Rand herself and what she relied on and how these programs uh, for her were essential at the end of her life. Yeah, at the end of her life, Ayn Rand, who's this technology—I mean, it makes—it's great Silicon Valley Bank. It's the perfect segue because, you know, a lot of these technologists 
worshippers, I think some of them have like boats named after the fountainhead and uh, kind of books that Ayn Rand wrote. But in truth, at the end of her life, she was dependent on Medicare and Social Security. She had had lung cancer and she used a proxy, uh, like sort of a friend uh, or assistant to get the get that those services for her. But they were in her name. And this is somebody who said, oh, I'm I'm on my you know, you have to survive on your own, you know. Everybody has to accrue as much power as they possibly can, and that's the only thing that matters. And at the end, like so many of us, uh, she was dependent. She was dependent on her her acquaintances, nurses, and ultimately the state. And I think we need to remember that. Uh, you, you wrote a New York Times piece headlined, Can We Put an End to America's Most Dangerous Myth? And in it, you cite a 2020 a Pew study which found that 60 percent of Republicans say personal choices are one of the main contributors uh, to economic inequality. What, what do you think accounts for this belief? Well, I think there's something called loss aversion, where you have people who are— um, sort of in the middle class, let's say. I mean, a lot of the Trump supporters, if we look back at the, their earnings, they, they earned like something like an uh, average of $71,000 a year. These were not poor people. But they were afraid of falling down the ladder. And I think that that's something that means that they put too much value almost in the power of their own hard work and determination to protect them from falling down the ladder. They sort of use it almost as a kind of magical thinking. And so I think that's reflected in that study. I think what's so really interesting about your book, uh, Bootstrapped, is the way you look at popular culture, whether we're talking about Ayn Rand and, as you said, like ends up uh, on Social Security and using Medicare and needs that. uh, But we think about her as the person who is completely separate from anything like that to Little House on the Prairie that shaped so much of um, the 1980s in popular culture. Talk about the Homestead Act. Talk about what shaped this country, what people relied on, but then what they deny uh, once they rise to the top. Yeah. So I, Homestead Act of 1862 was is the biggest to, to date land giveaway that this country has ever seen. And anytime you see these stories about pioneers, including Little House on the Prairie, there's a great likelihood that they received a parcel of land um, from the U.S. government. And that was what led to their you know, uh, their farming and their their future success, their their property holding. Of course, this land was originally, let's just be frank, stolen from indigenous people. Majority of the people who received it were white. Um, many were, were men. And that is the story that that begins this country as, you know, the, the, the West, the settling of the West. And in Little House on the Prairie, in this kind of popular culture, we're just seeing the rugged individualism. We're not seeing the social generosity at the root of it. So when I'm trying to myth bust in this book, I'm trying to I keep trying to point out the spaces where people had a hand, a hand out and a hand up that they may be denying, because I think that's part of what we need to do. We need to start critiquing the self-made myth um, in politics, in a contemporary politics, and also historically. And we have to go back in the past to get to the future. So we have to look at things like the Homestead Act, and we have to look at things like the GI Bill that were real acts of uh, social giving that have helped people survive 
and we need to use them rhetorically when we're, we're asking for more support for our, our, our citizens. Over the years, Donald Trump has repeatedly portrayed himself as a self-made billionaire whose only head start was a small loan of a million dollars from his father. It's not been easy for me. It has not been easy for me. And, you know, I, I started off in Brooklyn. My father gave me a small loan of a million dollars. I came into Manhattan and I had to pay him back and I had to pay him back with interest. I built what I built myself. And I did it by working long hours and working hard and working smart. More importantly than anything else is by using my own brain. And there was a point where I was making so much so fast and it was so easy that I almost got bored. And it's true. In a chapter on rich fictions, Alyssa, you write about how Trump has pushed the myth that he's a self-made man and spoke to voters who said this was key to their support for him. Yeah, there was a study done in, I think, Wisconsin in uh, 2018 that talked to Republican and Republican-leaning voters as they were, you know, deciding in, in, I think, even in the voting, you know, voting polling stations, like who they were going to vote for. And they they thought he was self-made and that that was part of why they said they were voting for him. And when the researchers kind of laid out the ways that he was not self-made, their uh, their ardor to vote for him went down by 10 percent. I thought it was a fascinating study, and it was something that potentially progressives and Democrats should be thinking about uh, when they're trying to, you know, when they're up against somebody who, in Trump's case, falsely portrays himself as self-made, obviously beneficiary of Fred Trump um, and millions of dollars and loans and all the rest and, you know, uh, not paying his taxes, um, that once we show people this, that it can actually be a tool for social change. And we need to sort of puncture the myth uh, whenever it crops up. And uh, this uh, fixation with the individual effort as uh, determining your success or not, how did that uh uh, how did that fare during the pandemic uh, and uh, the enormous sense that people had uh, to that they needed help in dealing with the pandemic? I, I feel like the pandemic taught us a lot of lessons around the value of what I call the art of dependence, the grace and skill and um, power of depending on other people in our lives, which we, we all do on some level. But during the pandemic, we were dependent on people to, you know, so-called curbside delivery, which were people. People were curbside delivery, right? They, um, we were dependent on our medical system on a grand scale. We were dependent on our uh, the parents of our children's friends to do remote schooling if we were do, doing remote schooling with them in the so-called pods, which people wound up hating. But um, the point being that it was a moment where we recognized how interlocked we were, um, how complementary. I think there were there's we were valuing essential work. We called low wage workers, essential workers, frontline workers, not unskilled, which is a term I really dislike for talking about uh, people who do a good day's job. If anyone's ever made a pizza, you know, a guy making a pizza is not unskilled that that we respected those folks. We gave them uh, sometimes hazard pay. I think the pandemic had lessons for us about valuing each other and valuing a certain kind of worker or maybe sometimes a little, uh, you know, uh, in a way that didn't wasn't sustainable for people, unfortunately. But we, we need to get back there and to remember the, the sort of value of those those moments of togetherness and interlockingness. Alyssa Court, we want to thank you for being with us, executive director of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, her new book. 
bootstrapped, liberating ourselves from the American dream. That does it for our show. Democracy Now! is currently accepting applications for a digital fellow. Learn more and apply at democracynow.org. Democracy Now! is produced with Mike Berker, Nick Feldstein, Augusta, Messiah, Reds, Nermeen, Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warren, Octorina Nadura, Sam Alcoff, Tamari Astro, Joe John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Honey Masood, Sanji Lopez. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez.